Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secret Birds HQ podcast. And this is podcast episode number 76. And today we are joined by Miss Luvena Rangel. Hello, Luvena. Hello. Hi, Joanne. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And Luvena is joining us from India. And which city in India are you in? I am uh, in Bangalore right now. In Bangalore. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. It's very, yes, it's very early over there. So I really, really appreciate you having this chat with us this morning and being our guest. And Luvena is the founder of The Curvy Yogi. She's also a diversity and inclusion advocate, as well as a yoga anatomy and wellness educator, a transformation catalyst, a writer, a speaker, a blogger and a coach and she comes with over 15 years of experience in international oil and gas aviation and logistics business born and raised in the middle east and with an academic background in science and medicine from ukraine she pursued her passion to deepen her knowledge and skills in holistic health wellness yoga ayurveda and meditation and built a reputation as a certified coach and trainer alongside her career her repertoire includes training with Deepak Chopra's Center for Wellbeing in Ayurvedic Lifestyle and Meditation. And since moving to India in 2014, she has carved a niche for herself as one of Bangalore's, Bangalore's leading educators in yoga anatomy. You have to tell us more about yoga anatomy. I haven't uh, heard much. I mean, I know what yoga is. I know what anatomy is, but I haven't seen them together <laughs> next to each other. And um, being a plus-size yoga practitioner and senior instructor, uh, registered with Yoga Alliance, Luvena is the founder of the Curvy Yogi, redefining wellness by embracing diversity and inclusion through practices and education that goes well beyond stereotypes, creating a safe space for yoga and wellness regardless of shape, size, physical limitations, or other sociocultural biases. She's an advisor to Yoga Alliance on the Standards Review Project in the Inclusion Workgroup and is a community partner with the Yoga and Body Image Coalition and the partner ambassador for Canadian-based Accessible Yoga. She's recently been showcased as a fitness ambassador for DV. Is that correct? Did I say that right? DV? Davy. Davy. Okay. And MyLined Soman's brand for sustainable athleisure clothing for women. She's a passionate teacher. She's tra- trained hundreds of yoga instructors, including physicians, paramedics, and support staff of Manipal hospitals, wellness teams at Amway, and other established corporate facilities. And she's worked closely with doctors, integrative medical practitioners, and therapists across the world, having collaborated with teams in the United States, the UK, Canada, Dubai, across Europe, and in India. She currently hosts a monthly focus group talk for yoga teachers to discuss yoga anatomy and integrative practices that can benefit the yoga community, and is the lead faculty in many yoga teacher training programs. She's a powerful motivational speaker. I know that because I've heard her speak before. And she's a strong advocate for gender equity and facilitates diversity and inclusion conversations and structured organizational culture. Wow. That's a lot. That's so much. I feel so honored. My goodness. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Yeah, I didn't know that you were uh, educated in Eastern Europe. It's Ukraine. Yes, yes, I was. 
yeah so what did you what did you study in ukraine I studied medicine. I went in to study medicine. I mm-hmm. grew up just always knowing that I wanted to study medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, being an NRI as we call it, a non-resident Indian, mm-hmm. my grades didn't quite matter. I even though I did extremely well in school, I had to pay my way to Indian universities. And it was a financial situation at that point in time, so we opted for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means i had to do my entire program in russian learn yeah russian. yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. but i think uh, i think those years in ukraine were years that really defined changed who i am as a person I'm allowed sure. me to open myself up so yeah ukraine. yeah yeah i'm sure it but i mean i know there are many um people from across the developing world that studied in russia whereas now everyone's going to china back in the days that we one went to russia or what was mm-hmm. back then before ukraine be- became ukraine it was obviously russia i know a lot of people who studied engineering and medicine in that part of the world and like you said mm-hmm. they had to learn the language and all of that so how many years did you spend studying there so i was there for 5 years okay. in all Mm-hmm. the entire program was for 10 years that's a 7 year md and then a 3 year phd oh wow and, okay. uh, yeah so i didn't finish i i dropped out and mm-hmm. i returned my scholarship oh, wow. um, yeah uh, i think that seems to be one of the most uh, daring and guilt laden <laughs> ever taken because coming from an indian family uh, where um, education and academics play such a big role mm-hmm. for me I found the support from my parents saying that look if you're not happy doing what you're doing then you can come back and do whatever it is that you want mm. uh, but of course it took many years uh, since for me to overcome the guilt of oh i let my parents down i didn't go and finish my studies i've always wanted to be a doctor and now i'm not but what that experience did to me was um, allowed me to uh, explore allowed so i i think i rode the wave of uh, the internet uh, evolution when the mm-hmm. internet boomed and it allowed me to explore what else is available that i really love to do that's mm. how i came through uh, to uh, you know to the entire field of holistic science and i realized that this is the medicine that i love practicing this the one that connects me with people that helps yeah. me really reach out to people which traditional medicine or medical education does not necessarily teach you to do yeah and i was just going to say is that why you left the program because you felt you mm-hmm. weren't you was a bit disconnecting because a lot of doctors complain about that and that's something that's emerging now that the training that doctors get it's it's actually it's very scientific but it's not really holistic and mm-hmm. it's not very human you know and the, yeah 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 that that was one of the primary reasons because I was doing very well academically mm-hmm. I could memorize I could uh, I could connect cognition was brilliant mm-hmm. but the human touch mm-hmm. so every time we had rounds and I would uh, if I would uh, hold my patient's hand at that point in time then I was told off and i said listen i was told that i had to keep my emotions out of it and mm. keep a straight face no smiling and eventually mm. i started getting depressed uh mm. so i and uh, and i couldn't cope with it i couldn't bring myself to get up every morning and it wasn't just the cold uh, but just 
I couldn't get myself to go and do something where everything that my heart wanted to do was being inhibited. Mm. Okay. So yeah, I I think it was now in hindsight I I think it was a very brave decision for someone so young to just insist and say although I didn't know what the consequences were going to be but to put my foot down and say I can't do this. I I don't want to do this. I need to come back. Yeah. So um, I think um, if I were to go back to my younger self and you know just tell her that okay you did good you're doing well later on i i think that would be a good thing to start with <laughs> yeah definitely and where were you raised in the middle east born and raised in the middle east it says so where were you raised yeah i was born and raised in kuwait okay yeah a kuwait a very small country where our communities are very tight and closely knit mm-hmm. uh, we have a very strong indian community there mm-hmm. but um, Contrary to popular belief, and especially of my friends in India, mm-hmm. the NRI or the non-resident Indian community mm-hmm. uh, comes with um, families or generations of parents who left India, mm-hmm. um, maybe somewhere in the late 60s or the 70s, and they carry on that image of India while they raise their children in the Middle East. Mm. So while India moved on and took a more modern uh, you know, outlook or a more contemporary outlook. Mm-hmm. Most of us were raised with uh, the fundamentals or ideas of, um, of an India of the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. So we tend to be more um, stereotypically driven or more uh, uh, conscious of being orthodox or mm-hmm. uh, you know, towing the line, be more Indian, although we don't have all the the Indianness around us. So, no, I've heard, I've actually heard mm-hmm. that before because, you know, you and I met in India and the Indians mm-hmm. in India often say to me, you know, the Indians in the US and the UK, those who migrated, they always say to me, they're stuck. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're stuck in that era from when they migrated and the way their their view of the world and even of India is very different to us here in India in 2018 because like you mm-hmm. said, we've moved on, we're modern, we're progressive, we're just, you know, and uh, one of my close friends who is Indian, she always says to me, when second generation Indians come back to India, they're always so surprised because their parents have given them this view of India that's just not correct. Oh, absolutely. I I fully agree. Um, I didn't visit India until the Gulf War. And uh, and that was a very traumatic uh, experience for, for us, of course. But but when I came there, of course, it was still, I, I was just about 12 um, at, the, at the time. But um, visiting India as an adult, and I have to say visiting because I've never lived in India apart, for the, apart from these past four years that I've been here. Mm-hmm. But visiting India was always traumatic because we always felt out of place. We were yeah. not included. Uh, we, there was always this atmosphere of exclusion that was reserved for us. Um, well, we did look slightly different. We spoke differently. Uh, We dressed up differently. So uh, there was this constant pressure to fit in. And I think these these experiences uh, more or less fashioned and formulated my personal belief system or my needs to be included. And uh, over the years, I realized that I was getting more and more passionate about this entire concept and idea of inclusive uh, cultures Mm. and uh, my well even when I worked 
I worked with organizations where there was uh, an underlying ethos of um, diversity and inclusion. So for a young woman on her career path to have her personal values reinforced by organizational values, which spoke about uh, these uh, matters, I think where I stand today, it's just a reinforced version of my past. Wow. Okay. So now you've been living in India for four years. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is home for you now. I, yes. you're, back, you're back home. So you left Kuwait, um, went to study in Ukraine, went back to Kuwait and decided, okay, I'm moving to India. Is that how, how it went? Or did you live in some no. other countries? <laughs> mm-hmm. I did, I did. I okay. moved back to Kuwait because that's where my family was. My mom's still there. Okay. But then I married and moved to Dubai. And I was in Dubai for 15 years uh, before, um, well, a decision was taken where I was not in control. Mm -hmm. And due to so many other factors, I had to choose to move to India. And it was very difficult because I've got three children. And uh, my children also have not lived in India. They were born in the Middle East. And that's where their family, well, not the family, their friends, their schooling and everything was. But uh, it would have been uh, difficult for me to raise my children in the Middle East without uh, their father being with them. So it had to be a very conscious uh, decision to make a move. But instinctively, for some reason, I just felt that uh, that it was time to go back or, or to go to India because I just felt that there was something in India that I needed. I I didn't know what it was. I was just purely going on instinct. And I stepped into it. I left a career where I was thriving. I was at the peak of my career. I left an entire security blanket of financial independence. Um, And and those were big things. Those were big things for me. uh, Because those 15 years in Dubai, ideally made me the woman who I am today. Uh, independent, confident, uh, really rooted in herself. Because when I moved to Dubai, I experienced a year and a half of being in the pits. I've experienced depression. uh, Everything that that, uh, I stand in support of today for women, uh, uh, you know, asking them to come out of it in terms of domestic violence or postnatal depression, depression, just the the sense of feeling excluded or lost. Uh, It brought me out from that. So for me to move to India was a very, very significant move, but one that I think I, I needed, I needed to have done. Wow. You listening to your story, all I, all that comes to mind is change. Mm-hmm. Change. You're constantly just a lot of change and constantly reinventing yourself and having to adjust and, and all of that stuff. And I, I think that has made you a very strong woman, a lot of inner strength. True. Yeah. Uh, well, not, 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 not speaking in cliches, but you see when they say cl- uh, change is the only constant. Yes. I think when you experience that, you, you tend, you have no choice but to agree. Um, you're not in control and control uh, has always been one of my uh, struggling points because, yeah. uh, because change was usually uh, either forced upon me or just presented itself. I very rarely opted for that change. So uh, by nature, I think I'd be happy to go with the flow. But when change presented itself, 
then I had no choice but to adapt and uh, make yeah. the best of it. So yes, uh, it is a strength now that you mention it. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, uh, sure. Now, th- yeah, I, I think um, mm, adversity in a way, being a very good teacher. Absolutely. Yeah. A- absolutely. So now we know a little bit more about you. So let's jump into the topic. We are going to talk about inclusion, women entrepreneurs in a man's world, conscious and unconscious bias, creating a business in an industry that is inclusive, um, looking at your personal business values and things of that nature. And more importantly, what is the economic impact of building an inclusive business, which is, which is, which is conscious of, of what it is doing. So tell us more about that topic. So um, I think this topic actually arose, uh, Mm -hmm. like I said, because of uh, what I felt very strongly about. Right. I, uh, being a woman, I who and who identifies with being a woman, I felt a very strong connect with challenges women faced, mm. and not necessarily in the in the in the business world, but also at home. So uh, I realized that as women who are looking for success or in their careers, uh, and entrepreneurship came much later. Uh, but when I looked at women who were just looking to go forward, I realized that they were left out from a lot of conversations, from a lot of opportunities, from a lot of privileges, uh, mm. and especially in developing countries, um, because we come with generations and centuries of social conditioning uh, mm. that, that really follows and toes the line of patriarchy. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah. And when you just think of that one big, broad umbrella topic of patriarchy, you realize that it affects every woman, no matter what she says. Yes. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and women are uh, good at, uh, at masking those difficulties, mm-hmm. even the strong ones, because, uh, because they know that, uh, somewhere in their journey, right from childhood to college or university, and then making their power, you know, just trailblazing, they have been met. Uh, and I'll go on record to just risk a statement saying that they have been met at least 10 times in their life um, with different and varying shades of being excluded or not being presented the opportunity that they need to. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I realized that, you know, not being part of the community that you work in or live in is uh, very stifling. You don't, you don't end up being creative. You don't uh, end up truly living your purpose. So inclusion played a big role in understanding uh, how women can actually be a part of uh, the workforce. And uh, along with inclusion comes other topics, uh, come other topics like diversity and unconscious bias. Because, uh, well, in the world that we're living now, most of us would like to speak in terms of being very approachable and being unbiased and unprejudiced. But let's face it, all of us are prejudiced, even the women. We're all, yeah, we're all prejudiced. Mm -hmm. And, and, And as women, we... We, we face that all the time in, in the work that we do. Yeah. Uh, we have biases that we're telling, uh, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously repeating to ourselves in terms of stereotypes. We have um, requirements or uh, so-called duties that are uh, uh, given to us as part of our culture. 
and yeah. uh, or you say well too much success isn't good so you know maybe you can go and aim for a 60% success and then when you hit that 60% you have to remember that you have babies to birth and you have uh, food to put on the table you have to cook and clean and everything and women usually tend to be overwhelmed and uh, not always but somewhere down the line they are struggling with that idea that they have to deliver according to someone else's expectations and there's a very fine line between it being someone else's expectation and then embracing it and saying you know what i think i need to be doing this if i have to be if i have to have it all mm. where the patriarchy doesn't give that uh, that um, responsibility to men of sorts that, mm. to have it all they can fail but women cannot women have to succeed in everything that they do mm-hmm. so so there are a number of things various uh, uh, dimensions to the topic but uh, yeah you know that's about some of the main things that led me to create what i create and have conversations like the ones that i do have yeah you know something that you said um irrespective of of whether a woman acknowledges it or not we're all living within the patriarchy we're all products of it we're all experiencing it we're all suffering under it because you meet some people some women rather who would say oh you know i don't i'm not a feminist and you don't have to be but they mm-hmm. they refuse to acknowledge this they refuse to acknowledge that the system and the structures that we live in are mm-hmm. patriarchal why do you think that is why why do you think there's that denial you see denial from denial from a fact is just uh, not facing it right yeah. so when the fact is painful then human tendency our biology is where we choose to turn away from it unless yeah. of course we really uh, we really poised to look into it and take the bull by its horns uh, and i was speaking about this from personal experience uh, very recently I uh, you know I was speaking with a very close friend and I realized that there were some aspects of what I'm working on myself where I knew consciously I was making the effort to know what it was but every time I went close to unearthing what it was that I was in denial or struggling with mm. I would run away from it and yes I'm still working on it but I think this this experience is very is true for many of us because uh the trauma of uh, of being uh, you know um on the receiving end of prejudice or of a stereotypical patriarchy mm-hmm. is uh, is not conducive for growth not personal growth not professional growth yeah. and 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 that feeling is horrible mm. um and if women are uh if they feel broken even in a tiny way even if it's a tiny crack it takes time to heal because not many of us know how to approach someone who has been um castigated mm. you know and so it's better instead to just put up a shield and put on this uh, this mask this false bravado saying i can do it all and i will prove you wrong even though we don't need to prove it 
Mm. But we end up doing that because our, our mothers keep telling us that, our sisters keep telling us that, and women around us tell us. They they judge themselves by what they see of us. Um, mm. If I if we had to just you know visualize a successful career woman, mm-hmm. if I had to visualize it right now, even though I founded the Curvy Yogi. I see an image of someone in a smart and crisp business suit with a well done haircut, impeccable makeup, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. a, a swelled slender figure and obviously uh, rocking the man's uh, world in high heels. And mm-hmm. they all choices if they are, but it's a stereotype because that is everything that I right now am not. Yeah. Yeah. And oh I my God. Yes. And, uh, and, and that's how we are trained to uh, look at it. So if I were to um, judge myself or even compare myself to someone who's dressed to the nines that way, then there's a part of me that would say, you know, you're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And women entrepreneurs in a man's world. So what are some... Okay, we know that women are coping in this in in the man in the man's world generally. But as entrepreneurs, what do you think are some of of the things that women are facing daily as they build their businesses that relate to conscious and unconscious bias and and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so women entrepreneurs have it have it tough. Mm-hmm. They have it tough because they are stepping right into a man's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, an industry that's dominated with male privilege. Mm-hmm. So it is an assumption that men do better at business than women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are numbers that show that 50% more, and I, I forget the, the source right now, but that there are 50% more businesses that uh, are started off by women entrepreneurs, but unfortunately just a small percentage of them thrive on to become uh, successful entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial uh, startups, yeah. and that's that's largely. And, and we don't have so much of a number in terms of men because um, women uh, on the entrepreneurial journey are also looking for support. They're looking for uh, overcoming uh, sexual harassment, uh, you know, from being in the workforce, from having to deal with uh, vendors, customers, clients who uh, who do advertently or inadvertently uh, put up, uh, you know, sexual misconduct into the uh, entire activity. So they have to struggle with that as well uh, but the but the but the main thing that really holds uh, you know women entrepreneurial uh, women entrepreneurs away from achieving what they do is a lot to do with our biases and um, we just assume uh, things about women uh, yeah. in the workforce we assume that uh, you know they have a very short shelf life uh, um, in terms of uh, adding to the economy or being business women uh, mm-hmm. that they have a biological clock ticking somewhere that they have to run back to work run back home at six o'clock because they have to cook like it's a bad thing mm-hmm. uh, so there is that there are those added responsibility that everyone assumes they have to be given right uh, you know and uh, so largely, yes, largely it is this. They have to constantly 
be on their guard. They have to look at things in the way men or, may, uh, or male entrepreneurs would not necessarily be looking. There are those added elements. There is safety. There is who do I trust? Who's going to tell me all this? That is if they don't already know. Because women in business, yes, there are a lot of women in business now, mm-hmm. but they are a rarity. They are yeah. still few work as compared to men who might be rubbish at business, but they still thrive because they've got the personality to go with it and very few responsibilities because there is a woman taking care of it somewhere else, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. And men put up a front. Well, some men at all, you know, they're mm-hmm. very good at pretending that they have, they have things under control and that things are going well. But we research also shows that Females are much better at business in terms of making Mm -hmm. decisions and they build long-term businesses, which are sustainable. So the research is now showing that women are actually better at business than men. But there is still that cloud above that women are contending with, which says that you're not good. You have to work harder Mm -hmm. than everybody else and all of those things. So what um, are some of the strategies? Do you have any strategies that you think women can... um, implement for dealing with all the the various biases that exist in the entrepreneurial space? One of my largest strategy for anything to do with um, bias and prejudice is representation. Mm. Um, Representation matters. End of story. Uh, We have to also um, redefine our language uh, as women for other women. Um, as women for other men, teaching other men, teaching our sons, teaching our brothers, our colleagues, how to learn this language of inclusion and helping women to come uh, to really fully explore their, uh, explore their potential. So representation, languaging, these are two of my strongest uh, uh, strategies because within these two, you end up addressing so many other things. When you are conscious with the kind of language you use with women in support of or giving them a hand to come up to their fullest potential, you are also consciously using language um, and your own emotional intelligence to uh, address unconscious bias, language that uh, unconsciously you're using or behaviors that you're unconsciously using Mm -hmm. to to stifle the woman in front of you who's looking to make a difference, who's looking to step up in her business. Right. Mm. And this, this would mean that a woman would have to be building a conscious business. How would you define a mm-hmm. conscious business? What does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, so if we're living in a world right now where uh, everything around is not exactly the way we want it to, then I think there's a lot of truth held in be the change that you want to see. Mm. So my world is only going to be a reflection of the values that I bring into my world and the way I experience it. So that's, uh, for example, as I started off the, the curvy yogi, yes. there, were, uh, there were a number of reasons. I brought my own personal experiences into it, things that upset me and things that excited me. So I loved yoga. I love medicine. I love anatomy. I brought all of this together, which reminds me, I will tell you about yoga anatomy. Yes, yes. In- <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I just created this whole space of inclusion for myself because for, uh, for a while I was, you know, I, I felt very 
I felt all the different parts of what I do really well, but I felt them very isolated and disjointed. So I brought all those skills together. A conscious business is when you realize that you have something to add to the economy, but you're making a conscious decision to formulate the values of the organization or the business and align them with who you are, what your own personal values are, what you really truly believe in. Because yes, we have a number of values, but we are all really skilled and really good at those handful of values that, that drive us. That, that we breathe, that we live, that we think whenever we want. That, those are the non-negotiables. Mm. So when, when I, uh, since I feel so strongly about inclusion and the stereotypes uh, or going beyond them of wellness being accessible to everyone, I realized that the work that I was doing, the conversations that I was having was all about including women and men who were marginalized from the the mainstream offering mm. and uh, and and i believe as women since we're more heart centered in in a lot of the work that we do which also makes us better conversationalists and business women mm-hmm. um, there is scope for us to really unearth what we truly believe in and create that ethos that ethic that foundational value of your work and when you do that, you're, uh, yes, there is a struggle and there are challenges sometimes when you have to deal with, the, and, and that is life. I mean, you, you, have to de- you have to work around uh, some of the challenges, but bringing your entirety into creating the values uh, the, or the mission statement or the values of your organization align you and make you a force to reckon with. Yeah. Yeah. And I like what you said about non-negotiables. I think a big part of building a, a conscious business is your values. So who are you? What do you want? What exactly do you want to put out in the world? And what are your non-negotiables? What are the things that you will not tolerate? What are the things that you will not compromise on? And I think that's really in your business values. True. Uh, yeah. You know, it's very funny what you just said. The first three questions in meditation, mm-hmm. we call them the soul questions, Joanne. Really? Uh, Yes, the the exact words. So your first question would be, who am I? You know, who am I and what do I, uh, and then the second thing is, what do I want to do? How can I help? How can I serve? And what do I want? So these are soul questions because those allow an individual to slowly unearth what their purpose is, what they're meant to do, and how do they bring value to the world? And I think uh, the world we are in right now, being conscious about being conscious about our choices, being conscious about what we'd like to bring to the world yeah. is important. And yeah, I think that is. And also, so do you think then that yoga and the things that you're doing in your daily life uh, mm-hmm. would help women to build a conscious business? Definitely. Uh, not just because I promote yoga, but as a practice, uh, yoga is a mind-body modality. It is a, uh, it's a non-religious, non-denominational, um, it's a practice that allows you to be in touch with yourself. Uh, it allows you to be in the here and now. Uh, with time, it allows you to de-stress. And those are all just the obvious uh, takeaways. 
But practices like those help women really connect with um, who they are, um, right. make them understand foundational energies of what they carry within themselves and what they'd like to see more of and what they'd like to do more of. Definitely. So, so, so now can you tell us what is yoga anatomy? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yoga anatomy is not entirely a different field, but it's more uh, a westernized approach to what we already have in terms of the Eastern wisdom of yoga. Okay. Uh, for me in particular, with my background in medicine, which is contemporary and traditional mainstream medicine, I've always loved anatomy. I just, I, I love anatomy, everything to do with anatomy. Okay. So, and then I also am very, um, I'm a yogi. Right. Uh, I think it only made sense for me when I had done my multiple teacher trainings to bring in these two loves, if you will, yeah. uh, and understand the anatomy and physiology of a practitioner yoga practitioner and how yoga influences the body and how the body responds to uh, different practices or yeah. how much can your body take in a particular practice mm. uh, or just understanding how the body is structured, how it behaves and how it performs. And I think it, it was very, so yes, there is an element of inclusion there because otherwise they're too disjointed. One is esoteric and uh, uh, from the Orient and then you've got anatomy, which is largely a Western medical science. Right. And then you bring both of them together. And mm. uh, we have teachers who can step out into the world and modify their language based on who the audience is. They can speak scientific speak in terms of mainstream modern anatomy and re refer yoga. Or they can speak to someone who's steeped in yogic wisdom and say, well, you know, modern science also corroborates this. So it gives them an inclusive outlook to an ancient practice with modern study. Yeah, definitely. You know, I personally, I've been practicing yoga since about 2005, but on and off. And when mm -hmm. I first started, I didn't really, I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand. I just kind of thought, okay, yes, yoga, blah, blah, blah. And I was much younger than, and there was an element of me that thought, oh my God, you know, am I culturally appropriating this? This is Indian. I'm not Indian. <laughs> there was all of these things in my head. Oh, yes. <laughs> and yes. Yeah, and cultural I was living, appropriation. Yes, cultural yes. appropriation. Big thing, big thing yeah. that's all over right now. And I think in two thousand five, you know, the the world was a different place. So we mm -hmm. yoga was. I was living in DC at the time. I, I had just graduated from uni in two thousand one in DC, and I was still living there. And a friend of mine from Liberia had started mm -hmm. doing yoga, and I said, "Are you sure about this? Because we don't really understand." And I had studied an Eastern religions course in university, mm -hmm. and I learned about mm -hmm. Hinduism and the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and all that stuff. And I thought, well, isn't yoga religious though? Isn't this, isn't this tied to religion? And, and isn't this very spiritual? And do we know what we're doing? And I had all these questions in my head. Mm -hmm. And then now yoga is just so big, not just in the West, but in the world generally, mm -hmm. you know, in where, I live, where I'm from in the Caribbean and in, in all over the world, really. And um, it's a completely different thing. But since about maybe 2000, 16 i've been practicing yoga sort of almost every day and i can definitely say it's improved my life in countless ways definitely yeah it really really has but i love the curvy yogi because i like that you are about challenging the stereotypes and the body image and all of that because a lot of the times when we look at 
photos of yogis, they're very slim. Not that there's mm-hmm. anything wrong with that, but their yeah. representation, like you said, they're very slim. I remember the first time I saw this lady, I think she's based in California and she calls herself, is it big, big girl yoga or big gal yoga? Yes, or something? yes. She, there are a couple really, of them. Yeah, she's a very big woman. And I saw her doing all of these, the movements. And I thought, oh my God, I'm like half her size and I can't even do those things. And it really <laughs> made me realize that it's not about your size and your weight, you know, because she's obviously yeah. very flexible. But why did you decide to to work around, you know, going beyond those stereotypes surrounding yoga and, and breaking all these, I guess it's really ignorance about what yoga is and, and fitness and, and size and shape and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, when I actually came up with it the first time, it was just uh, about a year after I started my own personal yoga practice. Mm-hmm. And it started off not with the curvy yogi uh, ethos that I carry today. It right. was just because it was difficult for me to find beautiful, good fitting yoga clothes. Mm. Uh, and uh, I would find yoga clothes, but they were always, their extra large was probably a small for me. Uh, and, and I just wouldn't get it. And if I would, then they would be some dowdy, frumpy t-shirts or something that didn't even look nice or feel good. Right. And I'm wondering that if you need clothes to motivate someone to get fit or take up yoga or any of these things, then these tiny sizes are adapting to people who what we call today as Mm able-bodied. And uh, you're not allowing someone else the opportunity to be motivated by something that looks nice when they wear it. So my initial idea for the Curvy Yogi was a fashion line for yoga wear for plus-sized women and men to some extent. Mm -hmm. But uh, while I was thinking about this, I realized that um, I didn't have the skills to take up the fashion industry. I didn't. I didn't know anything about fabric. I didn't know the right people. I didn't know how to start up a business. So I parked it and I spent time training myself in yoga to be a yoga teacher. And uh, I had a back accident. So my intention was to bring yoga Uh, and the well-being that yoga offers to other people with spinal injuries. And over time, when I did all these uh, yoga programs, I realized that I was challenging the status quo. I was actually uh, working on constantly redefining what everyone else thought yoga was and who it was for. And yoga is for everyone. So uh, the fashion industry took a backseat and I realized that the values and the value of yoga, making it accessible to those uh, people who are marginalized, they wouldn't come into a studio because they were bigger or they didn't have, um, you know, the tools or uh, uh, skilled instructors to tell them how to get into an asana. And you rightly said, Joanne, it mm. isn't all about how you look and it isn't what people define or assume yoga to be. It isn't just about the practices. Mm. It's, it's it's much more than the practice it's a yeah. lifestyle it's, mm, it's it is mm. it is it's a mindset isn't it it is it is yeah and yeah. and i think you have managed to incorporate that curvy yogi theme with with everything that we've been talking about your business values and inclusion and and all of those things you know what i'd like to go over some of the terminology because i think there are a lot of people who get confused about all the terms so okay. We have moved, have we moved from diversity to inclusion? We no longer say diversity, we say inclusion. Is that correct? Yes. 
Okay. We also include an accessible part in it. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it's moving from DNI to DANI, diversity, accessibility, and inclusion. Okay. And we are now acknowledging everyone. So as you said, able, able body, for example, that's, that's terminology that we haven't always used. So we, we talk about people who may be disabled, people who are in, in wheelchairs and so on. And then we talk about something I hear a lot of is cis men. So I'm assuming these are, well, you define it for us. What is a cis male? So uh, cis is the opposite of trans. So if we look at uh, standing at a particular point, mm -hmm. uh, everything on the other side of the fence is trans and mm -hmm. everything that's on this side of the fence, which is uh, assumed to be the, the normal, there is no such thing as normal, but just for lack of a better word, this side of the fence is cis. So when the majority of the population assume that uh, humanity is is heterosexual then mm -hmm. this has got more to do with sexual orientation and preference so transgenders would be um, men and women who feel more in line with or identify with the gender that was not assigned to them at birth so they 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 tend to move on to take the qualities of a gender that's on the other side of what they were assigned whereas mm. What we call, uh, um, in terms of lay language, as straight is mm -hmm. what is generally cis. So mm -hmm. if I were born a woman and the doctors assigned me uh, the gender of a baby girl when I was born because mm -hmm. of my, uh, you know, the, the, the anatomical characteristics that I presented, mm -hmm. and as I grew up, if I identified with being a woman quality-wise, uh, and it's got nothing to do with sexuality and the preference yet, but it's just that, that resonance or that identity, then I would be a cis woman on this side. But if right. I felt like I have the body and the features, uh, the physical features of a woman, but I feel like a man on the inside and mm -hmm. I make the necessary changes um, externally or medically um, to dress up and to feel and to be more like a man, then I would be a trans man. I would be a transgender man. Right. And we no longer say there are two genders. There's, no. There are multiple genders now because we hear terms like non-binary. Mm -hmm. and binary and you know i'm not male or female i'm i'm mm -hmm. trans or so can you talk more more about that because i think there are a lot of people who are very confused about the terminology and like you said they may they may have their own biases but they're aware of them and they they want to do better but you can't do better if you don't know what all these things mean right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me put it out there you know at the start that i'm no expert on this field but i've done a lot of well conscious uh, desire to know what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so there are two things. One is gender, which is your uh, how you identify and what you're born with. And then there is a sexual preference or mm -hmm. an orientation. So they aren't the same things, but they're usually misunderstood. So mm -hmm. um, when, so, so if we're talking about, if in earlier terms, it was just lesbian or being gay or homosexual, and that is purely to do with your sexual preference, mm -hmm. right? But then you also have an identity uh, of being either, so if it's, if it's being either male or female, then it's binary. But then when you're non-binary, it's because it's when you don't necessarily identify with being either male or female. So that's where it's non-binary. Mm -hmm. And um, like my son once put it uh, you know, up for me, and he's 16 now. 
mm-hmm. he was explaining to me when I just said, you know what, uh, uh, there is this um, entire idea that we've just got two genders. And before I could say any further, he said, that's rubbish because you've got degrees of um, uh, differences in gender. So gender is like an entire spectrum. You know, uh, you either, uh, you move from one end to the other. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if uh, even, uh, well, cis individuals have a range that they move on uh, on a day-to-day basis, but largely categorized in one, you know, so their preferences and their identity are largely settled in one, but they may right. fluctuate here and there. Yeah. Um, then you've got intersex, uh, which is, uh, or we've already spoken, so LGB, bisexual is also uh, largely um, a sexual orientation of sorts, uh, of a preference where, uh, you know, you, you, your sexual activity can, or your preferences can go either way, based on how you feel at that particular moment, uh, or, uh, or the relationship you are in. So that's with your bisexual identity um lgbt for transgender then we've got q for queer where it's almost like well again i i may not be the expert so if i'm wrong and we have experts who are listening to this then please feel free to correct me mm-hmm. whenever you have it in your comments but as the term would say it's it's uh, it's almost like it's non-binary but it's more in terms of a preference also it's not necessarily for the gender uh, identity, but it's also about uh, your preference or your leaning. And uh, I'm not entirely sure, so I think I better not speak any further, you know. Uh, yeah, but you know, you know more than the average. <laughs> so thank you. Because <laughs> I, I think there, it's also important, like you said, to discern between the gender that you were born with and mm-hmm. then the gender that you identify with. And then there's also the separate matter of your sexual orientation, which is almost your identity. How do you identify? And they're all very different because you could have been born, like you said, and assigned as a male, but maybe you identify as female or maybe you, you, yeah. you feel that you're both. And then your sexual orientation may be bisexual. So yeah. you don't fit into either, either mm-hmm. category. And I think um, so that it's sort of non-binary people is, is the, the blanket term that we use to describe individuals who don't believe, who don't feel either male or female. Oh, well, cultural yeah. stereotypes can use any term to blanket anyone that they are, anything that they don't understand. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think the first step to removing that stereotype is to be willing to understand or to learn more about it. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many layers to, to un, unconscious bias, for example. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about gender, but then there's also uh, socioeconomics and there's there's yeah. culture and there's race and there's ethnicity and it's so nuanced there's so many layers depending on what country you live in and yeah. you know the 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 background that you come from there's a lot of different I mean if we're talking say like in the west then you hear okay women of color operating as entrepreneurs because mm-hmm. it's sort of like okay these are ethnic minorities but if you're in a big country like India for example the yes. diversity is very different. So what are some of the conversations happening in India around conscious and unconscious bias and, and so women entrepreneurs? Yeah, um, unconscious, a conscious, unconscious bias largely in India has mm-hmm. got a lot to do with the community. 
Uh, it's the community that you come from, largely patriarchal, because yes. that's still a struggle. So those are biases and unconscious, conscious as well as unconscious that, uh, that people carry as a whole. Mm. Uh, religious bias is there, but that's a social aspect, a social cultural aspect. I don't really uh, see that uh, coming in to mm -hmm. the economy unless it is a personal filter that creates the prejudice and allows or disallows someone to work or to explore their full potential based on their, um, on their religious or their faith, uh, religious um, sentiment or their faith. Mm. Um, but off late, I've been engaging with a lot of LGBTQI communities. Um, and, uh, and I see this entire area of uh, the minority or the, the, the bias that we have against uh, a minority. And this is why I say representation matters, because if you don't know what that community offers and how uh, detrimental it is to continue isolating them, then mm -hmm. you're doing yourself a larger disservice than service. Mm -hmm. um, we also have uh, biases uh, towards mothers, mm. towards women who, who choose to want to have children uh, or choose not to have children. And that's another thing uh, because there's a lot of your personal choice which is questioned and it's up for public debate. It's, you don't have a personal life when it comes to making some personal choices. So those are again some conversations. Um, working mothers and that, that's a big thing because women are such a large part of the workforce but there mm -hmm. is so much that they have to fight and contend with uh, and fight against just to make their presence felt and and if it gets too hard and they don't have the support to allow them to to get up there then they just give up and sit at home or they look for less challenging options which then also challenge them lesser to be more creative or more innovative Mm. So it's stifling. Uh, and, and, and India being such a huge country, the, the dimensions of disparity are huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something we need to always keep in mind when we discuss India. It's almost like when we discuss, I mean, India is a subcontinent, Africa is a continent. But just to draw parallels, people often mm -hmm. speak of Africa as this one big massive country. <laughs> <laughs> which it's not and they forget that there's so much diversity even in one nation and in Africa there's over 300 languages and different ethnic groups and India is the yeah. same way you know India is a massive country over a billion people where cultural backgrounds and religions and traditions vary from town to town city to city it's you know it's it's not it's not alike everywhere you go. You know, it's a woman in, in Mumbai is very different to maybe a woman in, in, in Goa or somewhere else in, 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 in the southern part of India or something like that. But um, these are actual conversations that are being had in India, right? So it's, yeah. these things are happening. But for those who would say India is a very patriarchal country, more so than other countries, would you agree with that? Or would you say that it's not a matter of a country being more or less patriarchal. It's just how it's manifested is different. Mm, I, think, uh, I think I will have to go with the context of what we're speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, if I were to look in terms of India and mm -hmm. by the, the micro dynamics of what's happening within the country, then mm -hmm. yes, I will say that it is very patriarchal. But, that's, but, but we, we also have a, democratic, uh, a demographic, uh, uh, what you say, 
uh, advantage or a disadvantage by being so overly populated. So mm-hmm. we have more of a percentage, but patriarchy is patriarchy. It, ha- yeah. it is all over the world. It's global. It's in every country that we have seen. Every government, every constitution that has been laid has got women who have been identified as property, as mm-hmm. chattel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it seems to be, uh, you know, a move or breaking the mold when uh, we have laws and bylaws, acts and bills passed to overcome this. And it's so slow and gradual. So patriarchy is in every system. It's in our social fabric. It's in the way we think. It's in the way we study. It's in, the, in our history books. It's in the way we do business. So mm. patriarchy is real. And uh, it's high time that, uh, you know, women realize that patriarchy is just a concept. Yeah. And And just like that, it mm -hmm. can shift. Yeah, it's true. It's like you said, it's just a concept. It's an idea. The reason why I mention that is because I think many of us who have not been to India or who have not been exposed to India, maybe we don't, we never had an Indian friend or, you know, whatever it is, however we, we get to learn about the world. When we think of India, we think of, okay, the dowry tradition and we think of Mm -hmm. women being a liability and we think of, okay, she's a woman, she's probably discriminated against, you know, we think of feticide and infanticide. I think these are the things that are child marriages as well. These are the things that are like thrown at us um, in the media. These are things that are highlighted the most we don't often think of a woman being someone who has um you know her own her her own ability to make her own to make her own choices it's just the same thing that we hear about all the time and i think that's why there's a view that oh my god india is so patriarchal (laughs) but when you think about it like you said the whole world is patriarchal i mean i guess it's the view is that indian women have no agency we know that's not true but there are a lot of people who really believe that because they just think of like i just mentioned dowry and traditions and and so on and and so forth so um would you like to speak to that or do you think like like i said it's just these are just one aspect of of india yeah a little bit a little bit because um uh, when we speak about Indian women have no agency and we know that they do, yeah. uh, I just want to point out that uh, there is an, an added shade to it. Mm. Uh, the modern Indian woman knows that she's got agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I see a lot of beautifully strong Indian women right now who exercise their, uh, their choice, their agency, their, their will um, in all of that. But for many others, it is just um, a box to check. And they feel they need to do it or that's the right thing. It's like a a new idea which they resonate with because um, inherently we know that we are more than what we have been assigned to. Mm. But, But the beliefs that we have been handed down and handed down, handed down is the best word, from generations is that we don't have that. So uh, while we're coming out, it's, it's like the butterfly that's just emerging. Um, mm. you, have, you have all these new ideas that, yes, I am my own person. I have my own will. But you are still constantly battling with a series of beliefs that have been handed down to us from our mothers, our grandmothers, our parents, our, mm. the entire social structure saying that, hey, you can go and be the best scientist in the world. But don't forget that you've got to come home and, uh, you know, take care of children and have babies by the time you're 30. 
Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, and then there is this constant battle. So, yes, they do have agency. They are well-educated. They are more exposed. They are, uh, uh, well, uh, sexually adventurous. So because sexual um, uh, conditioning was also a large part of, uh, you know, restraining uh, women expressing themselves. But there is all of that. And then there is that, that requirement to be that Indian woman or be that woman uh, the way everyone wants you to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're better off than a generation ago, or we're much better off than a couple of generations ago, but we still have a long way to go because patriarchy still exists and, uh, and the conversation surrounding it still exists. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And matriarchy yeah. is not the solution. Uh, that's where diversity and inclusion and balance comes into play. When you say, no, we're not drawing the, the bias to the other side, but we need to really find a good balance and work on it. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I like that you said matriarchy is not the solution because I think often when we speak of topics like inclusion and diversity and biases, we seem to, to think that, okay, if we go to the other extreme end and that's going to make everything better, but it won't. It's just going to flip flip the, yeah. the, 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 the coin a bit, and then we have uh, another set of problems. So it's almost like we need to have that balance where, yes. yeah. You know, I just remember uh, a few days ago on my Facebook feed, I, I saw this link that was shared uh, mm-hmm. where it said that this 104-year-old woman says that uh, the secret to longevity for women is to avoid men. I saw um, that. Yeah. <laughs> I and, and yeah, and I read that and I said, oh my God, if that were a protocol, I will not get past my five-year plan because I love men. I yeah. need men, uh, you know, and, uh, and men bring a lot of flavor, a lot of value to our life. I mean, um, what would I do with anything if there were no men and if I had to avoid them? So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, there is a sense of balance and balance is what we need to work towards. Unfortunately, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a fact that sometimes to get that balance, you have to push from the other side. You have to push. And uh, some people call it a fight and some people call it aggression. And they, you know, from feminists or pseudo feminists uh, of sorts say that, you know, you have to really put in the force on the other side. Women have been trampled upon and you have to force to bring them up. And I get where they're coming from, but mm. I personally don't subscribe to it. And that's okay. Mm. So because it doesn't it doesn't work, does it? It just I feel like you're using fire to to fight yes. fire, and it won't fire. work. Exactly, it won't work as much as I think that's the easiest route, and I think that's mm. the reactive route. Because when someone yes. harms you, you want to harm them back, right? But yes. you kind of have to have you kind of have to think big picture. You have to think much bigger than that, and unfortunately, that falls on the responsibility of of the victim. And then that, that leads us to the argument of, well, why does the victim have to be the one solving the problem? We didn't create the problem. So why do we have to form such a big part of the solution? But I don't know. I don't know. And that's, that's something I grapple with myself because I think whether you're dealing with sexism or racism or, or you know, it's a socioeconomic situation where you believe you're being discriminated against because you're not economically on the same level with someone else. I feel like you're, because you are the victim, you will bear some of the responsibility in, in trying to bring about change, even though you don't believe that mm. you should have to. Like when you're talking about racism, I have friends who say, well, we didn't create racism. We didn't create the institutions. We didn't yeah. create all of these things. So why should we be asked as, say, 
black people or brown people in the West to fix it. And I get that. But at the same time, I, I always say, you know, will the predominant, will the dominant culture work towards fixing something that benefits them? And I, and, and I feel it's the same way with men. You know, men know that they are dominant and they know they hold the power. Why would they give that up so easily? And why would they work towards creating equity when they know it means giving up some of their power? And then I, and I feel like from there, then you have to start deconstructing this, this, this conversation and thinking to yourself, okay, so how do we get people on our side? And then that's where the work begins. But that's my view. And I'm still working it in my head. You know, I'm not, I'm not a final product when it comes to this, to this but I, I really believe that no matter what, some of the responsibility will always be placed on the victim, sadly, because yeah. it's the victim's experience and the victim has to have a voice and you can't yeah. just kind of sit back and go, well, I didn't create this mess and I don't want to have to fix it, but because you, you are on the receiving end of the mess. Uh, you know, sometimes Joanne, that, mm. that voice and that expression of this is how I am hurt right now. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm hurting from this behavior. That expression sometimes helps the abuser or the dominant culture Mm -hmm. to become aware that yeah. that's what they were doing yeah and it's just creating that awareness sometimes and yes, to make them uncomfortable uh, and pay attention to what did i do to make her feel that way yeah. and then they realize that oh it was i didn't do it intentionally and yeah. once it, it's like that right that's what ignorance or, or our um, ancient scriptures say mm -hmm. there is no turning back from education once you're ignorant, you're ignorant. But once you know, there's no going back. You can't unknow. So the, it's the victim's voice sometimes that really penetrates the yeah. other side. And, and it is important to allow for expression because otherwise then the victim also feels stagnant in not being able to express themselves fully. Mm. Yeah. And I think also it's, it's like, okay, it's bringing about awareness, but I think it's also about choosing who you... Who you who you want to share that awareness mm. with and who you want to make uncomfortable because there's some people that you just have to let them be, <laughs> you know? And I feel like yeah. the older generation, you know, they're so yeah. much older than us. They've, they've come through a different time and they, I've accepted that some of these people will just never change. And as sad as it sounds, you just have to let them die with their views. I'm sorry. You can't help yeah. anybody. But you know, when you're, when you're dealing with more younger people and people who are still quite flexible or people who are a bit more open-minded, then you can start having these conversations and sharing your experiences yeah. and, like you said, it's about creating that discomfort because in that discomfort, you force people to think and then they change, they may change, they may evolve, they may grow, but it's, I guess it's a step-by-step -step thing. You can't change yeah. the world overnight. No, I wish we could, but unfortunately, no. But all that said, you know, it's easier said than done because there are a lot of people who are angry. There are a lot of women, yes. as we're talking about women yes. in this context, who are very angry who are very frustrated and who are lashing out and they're just like, forget this, forget men. We hate them. And, you know, and I get, and I get that too, yeah. but I just, I, I just don't know if long-term that's, that's some kind of sustainable solution. So true. So true. Um, I get anger. I, I do. It, I'm, I'm naturally a very fiery woman. Mm -hmm. So anger comes naturally to me when I'm upset about something. Yeah. But I'll just share one bit that I think has really helped me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, being a mom 
Uh, wow. I use my children. Well, I well use is not the entire is not the right word, but I um, I make use of my motherhood and the fact that I have three children who I can influence yes. uh, with making more conscious ideas known to them and so that they believe them. So mm. I have regular conversations, very frequent conversations in terms of uh, parity, in terms of gender, in terms of stereotypes, in terms of uh, the LGBTQ movement. And I've got three children. My oldest is 16 and my youngest is eight. And wow. they do know, uh, even my eight-year-old has heard me speak about uh, of sexuality. Um, and, and they know. So I'm trying to normalize um, things as far as I can influence through my children, because I may not be able to change the whole world, but I, I do have a responsibility and an availability of at least producing three human beings with a wider mindset to the world. So I may be gone, but at least I'm adding to that pot with three human beings who think differently, who, who think more compassionately, who bring more empathy into the world. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I think um, as a mother, that's uh, that's a beautiful responsibility. Uh, responsibility. It's a it's a beautiful contribution that I would make uh, to the world just through my children. Yeah, and I I've heard a lot of women say that. I actually had a friend of mine. She's got four kids, and she said to me, she said she's an entrepreneur, and she says, but my four kids are my have my my best startups because mm -hmm. I I can shape them, I can mold them, and through them I can change the world. Um, yeah. because that's four human beings that I'm adding to this world with, with four, yeah. you know, different perspectives and so on and so forth. And I think, yeah, but what, um, what words of final words or words of encouragement would you like to leave for our listening audience on this topic? Mm, on this topic, mm -hmm. I would say, um, just show up, mm. just be who you are. Uh, it's difficult sometimes uh, to be authentic completely, mm -hmm. but if you set the intention that this is who I am, this is what I want to do, and mm -hmm. this is what I bring to the world, and you show up in that conviction, mm -hmm. things happen. The universe conspires to allow you to create that world that you want, mm -hmm. and not just in your head, but it's also what physically manifests out of it. So... Uh, women, you are, I mean, all of us are faced with challenges, but there's no saying that those challenges are, you know, are finite or infinite. You'll have them, you'll navigate them, and we all do. Um, yeah. Look out, look around you. There are beautiful, gorgeous, strong um, women role models around you. Um, we, we, in comparison to men, yes, you find them, they're fewer in number, but hold on to those fewer in number and be a, respond, or be a role model for someone else just from being there and standing up for what you believe in because mm. the power of the feminine or the power of uh, women that they bring in when they're fully conscious and aware of who they are, when they fully stepped into their power is, is something that cannot be expressed in words. It is just something you have to feel and experience. So mm. go for it. Just go for it. Yeah, that's great advice. So where can we find you? Would you like to give us your social media links and an email address if anyone wants to reach out to you? 
Yeah, sure. I'm very active on Facebook and now I'm starting up on Instagram. So on Facebook, okay. I'm there at uh, on Lavina Rangel, but I do have my Curvy Yogi page. So it's uh, uh, Curvy Yogi Me, C-U-R-V-Y-Y-O-G-I-M-E. And that's the same handle on Instagram. I'm not very good on Twitter. So although I do have a Twitter account, I don't use it very frequently. Mm-hmm. But you may write to me on uh, Luvina Rangel, L-U-V-E-N-A-R-A-N-G-E-L at hotmail.com. And I promptly respond, even if your email goes into junk, but do use some identifying subject line. So I won't just, you know, empty yeah. the spam folder. Yeah, definitely. And is there anything in particular that you're looking for right now that you maybe a collaborator, a partner or or something mm-hmm. that you need support or help with that you'd like to share with us? So yes, uh I am working very strongly on building the 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 diversity and inclusion through the yoga community. Mm-hmm. Uh across boundaries so and across uh, social cultural geographical political boundaries so mm. i'm based in india right now and i am looking for uh, people who would to be open to collaborate with me if especially if they've got a, a spa a studio or a space where uh, we could be invited to bring in this wisdom this uh, philosophy this ethos of what the curvy yogi is about what yoga is about what diversity and inclusion means to women to heal and to come out of whatever they are and be the best version of themselves so if there's anyone who'd like to work with me on that and uh, we can co-create something beautiful, please do get in touch with me. Perfect. And finally, I would really like to just take this moment to thank you, not just only for being a guest on the podcast, but also for all the work that you do. Um, you've done a lot, you know, like a lot of the women that are guests on the podcast, you've, you've found a, such an intelligent and interesting way to bring your, your academic work and your passions and everything that matters to you and the things that you value into one little ball, you know, and, and, and made it this, this world that you're living in now, this business and this work that you're doing, which is very person, per, purpose-driven. And I really admire that. And the work that you do is very important. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing to, to help all of us be a little bit better. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you for the acknowledgement. Uh, It means a lot. It means a lot to be seen, to be heard, to be acknowledged and appreciated for it. So I'm very grateful too. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen. Thank you, Joanne, for leading the conversation. And I absolutely loved being here. Thank you so much. So that's it, lovely rare ones. I hope you have been inspired and motivated and encouraged. I know that I have. And please reach out to Lorena, as she did mention that she's interested in collaborating and partnering. And you've, you know, your bio stated that you've worked with so many medical practitioners and different types of people over the years. So you, it's something that you always do anyway. And it would be nice to just add, add more different types of people to your repertoire and, and keep that cycle going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.